In the discussion last night, I was explaining the problem of the relativity of sanity and of health and uh, the necessity of our having an attitude of great humility to what we consider to be right and wrong ways of behavior and more especially of experiencing. And in course of discussion, I raised the question that we had to entertain the possibility that the way man has civilized himself may, from one point of view, be a mistake. It might be a form of insanity. And therefore, people who, in one way or another, break away from that form of life could be argued as being more sane than the rest of us. To use an image that Ronald Lang has employed in his book, The Politics of Experience, if you see a squadron of airplanes moving across the sky, and then you notice that one of them peels off and goes in a different direction, which group is on course? We don't know because the one that's peeled off may have decided that the rest had lost their direction and had re-established a direction and was in a way on the right course. And his uh, whole theory of the treatment of schizophrenia in particular is that it is a painful symptom of readjustment to reality. Nobody is going to say it's fun to be schizophrenic, just as it isn't fun to have a fever. But a fever is not a disease. It is a symptom of health, a symptom of the forces of the organism expelling an invading form of bacteria. So if you suppress the fever, you're liable to kill the patient. So in the same way, we don't know whether schizophrenic behavior, and incidentally, schizophrenic behavior is a, such a vague term that it has really no exact or scientific meaning. So we must be open to the possibility that these things are to be studied from the point of view that they represent variations of reality, just in the same way that we find variations in all insect, plant, and animal species. I was at one time an amateur entomologist, and I knew entomologists who were busy collecting varieties, as they called them, of common white butterflies, or uh, various forms of sphinx moth, so on, all down the line. In the fritillaries, one comes across the most interesting varieties of the standard species. And uh, they, it's interesting, you see, they just call them varieties. They didn't call them deformed types or anything like that. They just had wing markings that departed from standard and sometimes uh, features of the antennae and other things like that.
So we have to realize that there may be varieties of experience among human beings. There are simply varieties. Sometimes a variety represents a kind of intermediate form between two uh, different species. But I don't know. There's a certain sentimentality, I suppose, in the attitude that uh, civilization is uh, a departure from the sanity of nature. But there's something about animals, wildlife particularly, I don't mean domestic animals except perhaps cats. Uh, dogs have been spoiled by mankind. They're turned into flatterers. But there's something about the creatures of the wild wherein one sees an extraordinary dignity. I live on a ferry boat in Sausalito, and from my main window I watch all the time wild birds in great variety come and play around. And for some reason or other, even gulls, I think sometimes gulls are just sort of um, winged hunger. <laughs> they seem so rapacious. But even then, there's something that I cannot quite put my finger on about these creatures that makes me feel that they have a sanity of an extraordinary kind. Some animal species, in particular ants and bees, have followed their forms of life almost unvaried for millions of years. For they're creatures that have no history. Because one day is just the same as another. One season, just the same as another. But human beings are all terribly excited about history. And we think that uh, in history, there are a lot of theologians who maintain that in the course of history we see the unfolding of the mighty acts of God. Somehow history is a significant motion towards something extraordinarily good. As Tennyson put it, that one far-off divine event to which all creation moves. And I've been awfully suspicious of this for a long time. When I was in theological studies, I kept arguing with those Christians who insisted that history was in a way fundamental to an understanding of Christianity because the incarnation of Jesus Christ was not a mythological event but a historical event. Something that did happen and initiated a new process in the development of mankind. And I have an idea that history is a, is a, is a disease. At least I'm going to entertain this possibility. As Emerson put it in one of his essays, these roses under my window do not meditate as to whether they are worse or better than former roses. <laughs> the rose, he says, is the rose. It exists just as it is with God today. Whereas mankind, heedless of the riches that surround him, stands on tiptoe to foresee the future or to regret the past. End of quote. 
And I, there was Zen master, he's, I'm afraid, deceased, who told me that it was reading that passage in Emerson that enabled him to penetrate the meaning of the first koan that his teacher gave him. So history is this tremendous preoccupation with events in such a way that uh, the movement of life in its design from the past into the future becomes, as it were, where it's at. But it's uh, when you are preoccupied with the design of motion in that particular way, you become preoccupied with events that you do not experience directly. The past is not here, except in the reflected form of memory. The future is not here, except in the imagined form of anticipation. And as a consequence of that, one lives an impoverished present. Because the present is reduced to the hairline cross point that stands between the past which is gone and the future which is not yet here. And this, of course, is represented on the dial of the watch by the fact that uh, this moment is indicated by a very thin hairline, as thin as possible to be consistent with visibility. And that represents in a highly symbolic and significant way the present in which most people live. This is the result of our hurry of living in constant anticipation, whether pleasant or painful, of uh, being incapable, really, of uh, being present, of being all here. So we think, when we consider the possibility of a non-historical civilization, that it would be exceedingly boring. No progress. And we look at some places that we consider backwaters, or what we consider backward countries, and it's always characteristic of such places that they are somewhat non-historical, that uh, they are humdrum, that there isn't a great deal of excitement. And as you read the chronicles of certain cultures of the past, you're amazed to see that they have no sense of history at all. This is particularly true of ancient India. It absolutely bedevils the scholars that in these texts that are handed down from generation to generation, uh, a long time before they were committed to writing, they were remembered and passed down orally. And thus when a certain king uh, was named, and the historians would like to use that name as a means of dating the text, you're never quite sure. Because in the oral transmission, they may simply alter the name of the king to fit the present king. Simply because, uh, naturally one does that, because things are always the same. And so, the king who is king today is really holding the same office, and in that sense is the same person, mask, as a king who lived long ago. 
But you see, as I said, from our point of view, that seems extraordinarily boring. But it would only be boring for those who lack a rich present. Obviously, if you don't know how to be completely alive here and now, that kind of thing would be just devastatingly monotonous. But apparently, you see, for the bees and the ants, it isn't uh, something awful because they go on living rather successfully. And we despise them. We say of these creatures, they are mere bees, mere ants. And uh, we think that, uh, for example, if the communist idea of uh, politics were to prevail, everybody would become ants. It simply isn't true, because nothing is more historical in its emphasis than Marxism. Uh, Marxism is entirely bound up with the philosophy that history has a inner momentum which will inevitably bring certain things about. And that the appearance of Marxism, the Marxist revolution, is, as they say, a historical necessity. The real reason why we are contemptuous of bees and ants is that we don't understand them. We look at them from a certain point of view which is selective, and therefore there are many things about their lives which we either don't notice or are incapable of noticing. When von Fritsch discovered that bees have language, and that the language is conveyed by a dance, that may be only one form of bees' language, but he, you should all read that very little short book he wrote called Bees. Because, among other things, it is an absolutely perfect example of scientific reasoning and experimentation. Very simply and lucidly expressed. And there was a famous entomologist at UCLA who, when this book came out, said, I have the most passionate reluctance to accept this evidence. <laughs> you see, it was something that exploded the myth that bees were mere insects. Be warned that there are insects that are resistant to radioactivity. And that uh, when we had at Northwestern an entomologist called Dr. Park, he was always terrifying his students with accounts of the powers of insects and his prediction that they would eventually take over the world. And you see, insects, in a way, give us the horrors. Imagine when you blow up an insect to enormous size, and we see these things like spiders with mandibles, and they have hard, crickly shells around them. They buzz, they bite, they uh, jump unpredictably. And we feel uh, absolutely weird. They are the complete denial of the human image. Uh, but... I have a friend who lives in Big Sur, who when she moved here found that she had black widow spiders all over the place in her house, and that every time she put her shoes on she had to knock them to be sure there wasn't a black widow in it. And she had the horrors, but she had a very smart idea. She bought a book about spiders, and she ordered from some lab biological specimens of black widow spiders encased in plastic. And she studied black widow spiders and found out everything about them she could. 
and her fear disappeared. She knew how to live with these creatures. And people who study spiders find them extraordinarily admirable beings. And it's in exactly that way, you see, it's that sort of approach which we should adopt towards various human deviations. Study it. Get acquainted with it. I had a letter from a woman down in Santa Barbara who lives near an airport. And she said she simply cannot stand the constant interference of airplanes. Innumerable little buzzy private planes that go over her house and keep her in a frazzle all the time. So I said to her, get a book on airplanes. <laughs> Learn to identify all the different types. And if necessary, take flying lessons. And the problem will be solved. Uh, another way of getting friendly with insects, I've practiced this for quite a number of years, is to make friends with moths. It's quite easy. And the moth is a very cuddly insect. It doesn't bite. Uh, it's only the caterpillar form of the moth that sometimes destroys things. Uh, a moth can be coaxed to land on your hand and stay there for quite a while. You just get the hand out to it and say, hey, kitty, 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 don't be frightened, and it'll come and sit on your hand. And they make rather good pets. I suggest also, if you've never read it, that you get hold of a book, a very strange book called Kinship with All Life. A little book written by a man down in Southern California. I forget his name. J. Allen Boone. J. Allen Boone. And uh, it has an astonishing story in it, among others, of his friendship with a fly, which he called Freddie. And to everybody's amazement, this fly would come whenever he called it. And you know, it wasn't that the house was full of flies, just this particular fly around. Uh, there are great possibilities along these lines. And uh, in dealing with creatures, don't be afraid of anthropomorphism or the pathetic fallacy. You must talk to creatures just as if they were people, keeping up ordinary conversation, and uh, uh, because whether they get any uh, communication from the actual language, they certainly get a communication from the attitude. So experiment with that. Also, uh, there's a woman on television now who is uh, giving a wonderful series on gardening. She's an English woman. And she quite shamelessly speaks to the plants. A botanist would, of course, be horrified at the idea that a, a plant has any purposiveness or intent or any such human quality, but she treats them all exactly as if they did. And this enables her to be an absolute genius. So let's not be uh, unaware of the fact that what we call the scientific attitude, which in a way depersonalizes everything, including people, may be just a passing phase of mythology. Entertain that possibility. Don't be close to it. Because uh, my theory is, and this is again a little bit jocular, that every living creature thinks it's human. For the simple reason that it, if it is sensitive, all sensitivity is feeling that you are the center of the world. And God is defined as that circle whose center is everywhere 
and whose circumference is nowhere. Now you see, there is no circumference to experience. It goes out indefinitely. We look out into space and wonder, where does it end? And the answer that astronomers give is sort of complicated. Uh, we think it's a kind of double talk. It's, uh, it's boundless and yet circular. You can represent that mathematically, but you can't imagine it in a three-dimensional image. But uh, every being that is sensitive is a particular expression of the circle whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. And I think we're probably going to have to abandon the idea that there are superior and inferior expressions. As the Zen poem says, in the spring scenery, there is nothing superior, nothing inferior. Flowering branches grow naturally, some short, some long. And so it is with all the orders and species of nature and all their variations. But you see, as you watch any given species, you see, as I said, sub-variations within the species. And the more intently you watch, the more subtle they become. That is because we watch human beings intently, that we see each one of us is different, whereas all flies look the same. But to flies who watch each other intently, they all know that they're quite different. They have personalities, probably. All sorts of funny things going on. So now, I've been thus far really enlarging on what I was saying last night. But I want to continue with uh, a very serious problem that we have arising out of our study of nature which is related to this question of tolerance for variations. There's a famous French saying, to comprendre c'est to pardonner. To understand everything is to forgive everything. Because the more closely you examine the variations, the more you discover that they have a kind of inseparable relationship with each other that you, uh, you're normally looking at life as it were through a Venetian blind, uh, that there are certain areas that, seem, that, are, that are covered in this way that you don't think about the connections. You ignore the connections between certain events, certain things. But as you study and become more aware, the, the Venetian blinds are pulled up and you see that one set of circumstances goes with another. You may say that event is absolutely deplorable and ought never to have happened. Whereas that event is just great. That's the sort of thing we want. But as you study carefully, you realize that these two are part of a total process. One aspect of which does not exist without the other aspect. And then the more you look, this doesn't become simple. You notice that this relationship way doesn't go simply, as it were, in a line between one event and another, but in a many-dimensioned network involving everything. And this, of course, this, this perception of uh, 
the inseparable relationships of all events whatsoever is what is sometimes called cosmic consciousness or mystical experience. And uh, I must say it's a fascinating thing. I've recently found myself in this state of mind every morning when I wake, almost every morning. And uh, you have an urge at that moment to get up and write. Get that thing that you saw, it was so marvelously clear. The total clarity as to what it's all about. And then suddenly you want to put it down and you really don't know what to say. As a Chinese poet put it, picking chrysanthemums along the southern fence, gazing in silence at the eastern hills, the birds are flying home through the soft mountain air of dusk. In all these things there is a deep meaning, but when we are about to express it, we suddenly forget the words. I love to quote St. Augustine's saying, when he was asked what is time, he said, I know what it is, but when you ask me, I don't. It's like asking, what is reality? We all know what it is. But when we think about it, we can't find the words. And therefore, there's always a good laugh in this against the mystics. You know, the sort of uh, attitude that when William James took um, nitrous oxide to see whether he could get a mystical experience, he certainly did. But uh, he made some funny remark when he came out of it, which was... Uh, <laughs> it's so complicated I can't remember it <laughs> it was something like there are no differences except differences between various kinds of difference. <laughs> and of course, any logician looks at that and says, ha ha, the man's out of his mind. But if any of you have ever had that sort of experience, you know perfectly well what that statement makes good sense. As well as some other one person said, that, well, everything in the, in the world is the smell of burnt almonds. All this universe is the smell of burnt almonds. It's perfectly true. It's absolutely obvious. Anybody who studied Zen knows exactly what that means. It's uh, furthermore, uh, if you studied uh, Mahayana Buddhist philosophy, it's, it's the doctrine of Jiji Muge, the mutual interpenetration of all things and events. In other words, the smell of burnt almonds implies everything else. Because every in event in the universe implies all the rest, goes with all the rest. If, in other words, a specimen of something, uh, supposing there was some other universe altogether, and uh, into that were transported one human tooth, scientists in that other universe would study that tooth and reconstruct the environment which such a tooth would represent. And from that tooth they would eventually infer the sun, moon, and stars and all the galaxies in our universe. Just as uh, laser beams can be used to take a tiny fragment of a photographic negative, 
and reproduce the whole negative from which it was taken. Because every bit implies the totality. Now you see, when you feel that, you feel very funny. That's why a lot of people who take psychedelic chemicals and get experiences of that kind feel very funny. Uh, if you're not prepared for that kind of experience, it's very disorienting. Because it seems that there is no right and no wrong. Everything is okay. Or everything is equally evil. And anyway, who's in charge around here? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Am I the mere puppet of fate? Or am I God? If so, that's a terrible responsibility. It really scares me. <laughs> and, uh... So, uh, but you see, it's a perfectly obvious that anybody who experiences the world in that way is from our ordinary social point of view quite mad. Because we are quite sure that that is not the way things are. That there are right things and wrong things. And that you can get rid of this and preserve that and change it around so that it's much better. And that there are important things and there are unimportant things. Because uh, we decided that the important thing, of course, to which we, around which we really today constellate all our values is survival. It's a good thing to go on living. Well, we could question that. When Freud's doctor suggested that he stop smoking, he died because of cancer of the mouth. He said, as regards your injunction to stop smoking, I have decided not to comply. Do you think it's such a good thing to live a long and miserable life? Some people, you see, uh, work on the idea that life should be like a skyrocket. A zhup and a glorious bang. Other people think it should be like a carefully protected candle into which the fuel is fed very slowly and the flame kept alive as long as possible. But that could never be a very bright one. Who is right? Would you rather go out with a bang or with a whimper? <laughs> it's in a way a matter of taste. But uh, therefore, when uh, it is seen that going off with a bang is just as good as going off with a whimper, and that, uh, as the Zen poem says, the morning glory blooms only an hour, but differs not at heart from the giant pine that lives for a thousand years. You see that a long thing is the long body of Buddha, and a short thing is the short body of Buddha. So you're crazy. Because everybody knows that you have an instinct to survive as long as possible. Make the whole thing go on. Of course you have an instinct to survive. Because you've been, it's been socially inculcated. Whether you're a bee or whether you're human. Because they're on the same kick. Pull it out as long as possible. Stretch it. But maybe the Drosophila, the fruit flies, are not on that kick. 
They live very short lives, very quick, from our point of view, although maybe to them it seems just as long as ours. I don't know if Drusophila have a panic, but that they might live shorter than a few hours. But um, this then results in the fact that the person who has this experience very strongly tends to behave in conformity with it. And he gets an attitude which in Buddhism is called non-discrimination. That is to say, he lives in a sort of momentary way, does whatever comes to hand, and seems to make no choices. In other words, uh, he acts almost always as if he were purely acting on caprice and never stops to decide, to think something over. He just goes ahead. If you know uh, some of our Zen characters around here, uh, like uh, Suzuki Roshi, he, he acts that way. All of the, the Zen uh, masters that I know uh, act immediately. Uh, you call them up on the telephone, say, I'd like to see you. Uh, he says, when? I said, have you got any time next week? He says, why not now? <laughs> you know, comes right over. <laughs> and uh, there's a certain attitude like that. But you see, the thing there is that they are very, very sophisticated in that they know what the regular world considers to be sanity. And they don't offend against it. They live in two worlds at once. The difficulty with some people that we would call truly insane is that they cannot live simultaneously in the world of their vision and the world of our social vision. Therefore, because they can't play back and forth between one and the other, we say, look, you're not behaving properly in accordance with the rules of our game. So there's a certain art, a certain, um, I would say, basic self-protection that a mystic or a, 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 um, a glorious crazy man <laughs> has to learn. He has to learn to keep his cool. <laughs> and uh, especially, you see, when somebody doesn't really keep his cool. I don't think Meher Baba has not kept his cool. He's running around claiming to be personally in charge of the whole universe. And, uh, well, uh, maybe he is just as much as you and I are. And, uh, but you, you really shouldn't brag about that. Uh, at least I don't think so. That may be just a matter of personal opinion. But if I were to set myself up as God and sort of receive darshan and divine honors all the time, I'd start laughing. I think it was very funny indeed. <laughs> and I, I don't think I could keep it up. <laughs> Then, of course, there are the other types of mystical lunatic, who instead of setting themselves up as God, set everybody else up as God. And when anybody greets them, they pay divine honors to them, and kiss their feet, and uh, see the beloved in, in every human being. Well, uh, maybe that's a little excessive, too. 
But it's, it is an expression. It's just as difficult, you see, to express this insight in a particular form of expressive action as it is to put it into words. But when you see things from that point of view, you can see it's undoubtedly true, or at least it seems to be. It seems as real as anything else was real. And I think I can put it in a perfectly logical way that is scientifically respectable and point out that this is obviously the way things are and make it uh, quite rational as well as uh, mystical. But it is a little mad in the sense that when you come to see one thing is as good as another, one course of action is as good as another, short life, long life, everything goes together. Is this a deterministic state of affairs? Or are, are you in charge? If you live a short life and go bang, it's perfectly obvious in this state of consciousness that that's a mere incident. It's just that you abandon a personality, a certain set of memories, a certain accumulation of energies. You stop doing one pattern and do another somewhere else because the whole thing's you. Of course, there has to be that interval, where, which we call death, which is forget completely the pattern you were doing. Let it fall apart. And then when you start doing another, you don't immediately remember the one you did before. Because you have to figure it all out again, see, how, what to do. And everybody tells you, do this, do that, do the other, and then you do it like we do, see, we do it this way, that way, that way, see, and, uh, but, but this is going now, boom, it disappears, and then it all starts again. Because uh, all, all this, this dancing of energy is occurring within a field that we call space, which isn't just nothing. It's, it's, it's the self. It's, it's what there is. Space, energy. It's really a unity manifesting itself as the separate space and solid which we think we see. So, perhaps if you haven't had that kind of experience, you can at least imagine it, how it would feel to see things that way, and then to wonder what on earth you would do about it. When you see perfectly clearly, that there's nothing special that you should do or not do. You see, that's what's scary. It's like being, as a Zen master I quoted earlier on said, in the middle of the Sahara Desert with a high-powered car, which way are you going to go? 